Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Open up to Luke chapter 23. And let's stand for the reading of God's word, Luke chapter 23, verses 50 through 56. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. There are very few passages that I come to that... I find as as tender and caring as uh, this one that we just read together. That this disciple these disciples, uh, including this one, Joseph, who was a um, converted Pharisee that they would care for the body of Jesus after his death on the cross speaks of the love that they had for Jesus. Uh, The Romans, you may know, refused burial for the condemned. But Jesus' friends honor him by giving him a normal and a full burial. Joseph Joseph of Arimathea is uh, is an interesting man. What we know of him is from this this time at the end of the Gospels. He was a rich man. He was a wealthy man, we learn. He was a ruler of the Jews, being on the, the council of the Sanhedrin, but Mark Mark even says that he was a prominent member of the council. So he was sort of uh, the executive committee. He was, he was uh, close to the center. <laughs> Scripture also tells us this, that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. You think of men like Simeon who were waiting for this appearing of the kingdom of God. Luke tells us that, that he was a good and righteous man. And with clarity... Uh, Matthew tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was simply a disciple of Jesus. He was a disciple of Jesus. And finally, John gives us a further detail. Uh, John 
John writes of Joseph that he was a disciple of Jesus, yet a secret one for fear of the Jews. Now that last fact is significant because all that Joseph is now doing is very public. All that he's doing now is is out in the open. It is before the eyes of a watching certain certainly nation, but we know the world is watching. He, at the death of his Savior, is no longer hiding his faith. What, what does he have to lose? He has a lot to lose. Right? Well, his prominence, his position on the council, his reputation, his wealth, all of those are at stake in what, what Joseph is now doing. Um, remember that those Jews who came to believe in Jesus and follow him were removed from the synagogue. In John 9, it says, The Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. If Joseph of Arimathea was put out of the synagogue, that ends all of his influence. And for... um, And for a time, it seems, that led to a conflict in Joseph, didn't it? For a time, he weighed the two things, and he was secretly a disciple of Christ. He hid. And he was in conflict. But now, now it seems that Joseph has come to understand the words of Jesus. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And also, you remember Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. He's heard Jesus announce that the kingdom is at hand. He has seen and heard of Jesus' miracles. He had even, he had even made himself odious to the council, it seems. Our text says he had not consented to their plan an action, right? When the council had determined to get rid of Jesus, he, it seems, didn't show up because he did not want to consent to their plan. And Joseph saw Christ die. His actions are now saying, you know, you can have all this world, give me Jesus. Whatever I had is dung for the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. The Romans and the Sanhedrin now know exactly what Joseph believes and what he believed. So Joseph goes to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. Remember that condemned uh, criminals were refused burials. So what Joseph was doing... Even just asking for the body of Jesus took courage in and of itself. Pilate, after confirming that Jesus was in fact dead, remember he sends the soldiers to confirm that fact, consents. Pilate gives his consent. And look at what the text says in verse 53. And he took it down. The body of Jesus is removed from the cross by Joseph. 
likely with the assistance of others like Nicodemus, we know, is also there. Another Pharisee, another ruler of the Jews who believed in Christ. Um, He's there with spices. We read about that in John chapter 19. In a sense, we see here rich and prominent men, two Pharisees. Think of that. Rich and prominent men, men who had hidden their budding faith, now honoring the lifeless body of Jesus. Out of kindness, they become morticians, in a sense. All out in the open, all in the public, Joseph would honor the as yet unresurrected body of the Son of God before the eyes of the world. And so Joseph is preparing Jesus for his imminent bodily resurrection. What an honor, right? What a glory for Joseph. Again, remember this. Joseph is there while the Joseph, Nicodemus, these women are there while the apostles have been scattered and fled. This again speaks to the boldness of Joseph. Those closest to Jesus flee when the danger is high. This man who had hidden up to this point now gladly accepts the danger of the danger of faith in Jesus Christ. He would do the last thing he could do to honor Jesus Christ, and that meant asking for and caring for his dead body. Now that is something for us to think about. When Jesus is considered our treasure, our faith will not remain hidden. Or when Jesus is considered our treasure, one cannot help but show forth faith in him. Right? How can we who know that Jesus is the only way to heaven, that Jesus is the very Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that Jesus has rescued us from unmentionable wickedness and quite nasty sins, be silent and hidden away? Why is it that we are much more likely to have openly lived our faith when we were first converted than after we have learned more of his word and lived for a time as believers? Well, it's as I said earlier, when Jesus is our treasure, our faith will not remain hidden. It's undoubtedly true that many of us experience the joy of our salvation Right, the intensity of joy of our salvation nearest our conversion. And we enjoyed the fact that we were considered fools for Jesus Christ. Now we've matured and become nuanced and we've become sophisticated and specialized. And yet our zeal is gone. We have very little desire to to live our faith before the world, and that should not be. It should not be. Should not our witness grow? Shouldn't our witness grow as we progress in the faith? As we grow in our knowledge of God, shouldn't it lead to us being able to speak more of the greatness of God? 
And, and as our hearts are enlarged in his love, as, as we are sanctified and conformed to the image of Christ, you would think that it would lead to, to openness. Perhaps we are not making progress in the faith. Perhaps our knowledge of God has not grown since we first professed faith. Perhaps our love has become like that of the church in Laodicea. Right, that lukewarm church. What prescription does God, does Jesus Christ give to that church, that lukewarm church? He gives them a prescription. It's a two-part, um, two-part medicine. Know what you truly need. In other words, get true riches and repent. That's what Jesus tells that church to do. Because you say, now think of this. Think of Joseph of Arimathea. He's a rich man. Here's what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you. To buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. An eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. I think that Joseph of Arimathea spent much of his life saying, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing until, until he became a disciple of Jesus Christ. Then the source of his wealth changed entirely. We, uh, we may not say with our mouths, right? You, you and I probably know enough not to say with our mouths, I, I have need of nothing. But we certainly demonstrate that attitude with our anxieties and our lack of zeal and our generally hidden faith. And of course, zeal for God often comes when our repentance deepens, right? He says, be zealous and repent. And when we repent, our zeal sprouts anew. It is true what Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Right? Those who know of their spiritual poverty are blessed. Now, it must be said that as we consider this passage, it has been the consistent practice until more recent days for Christians to care for the bodies of their deceased loved ones, to bury them rather than burn them. And in so doing, to testify to the resurrection of the body that will occur at the end of the ages. Burial is a Christian testimony to the importance of the body. Just as all that Joseph and Nicodemus and these women are doing is testifying to what? The bodily resurrection that would shortly take place with the body of Jesus. Right, just just a few days ago, I was watching a um, a documentary about. It was strange, 
but it was about some caves in Tibet where they found human bones. And they were talking about, they shifted to talk about the modern practice of burial among the, the Buddhists in that area of Tibet. And they practice what's called sky burial, um, which really isn't a burial at all, where they expose the bodies of those of their dead on a high place so that the vultures will devour the entire body. In fact, they, they cut up the body and the bones into little pieces so that the, uh, the local vulture population will eat every last bit, leaving nothing behind. Why do they do this? One man said they do this so that the body will not be reanimated, or as he put it, so nothing remains to be resurrected. Now, of course, he doesn't understand resurrection. That body can still be resurrected and reanimated. But what that man understands that we don't seem to get as modern Americans is this. What we do with the bodies of our dead testifies to what we believe about what lies ahead. Right? They despise resurrection, and so they want every vestige of the body gone. Right? They don't want resurrection to happen. For the Buddhist. Resurrection is bad. It's, it's a particular lack of progression up the chain. And so the body and the bones are destroyed, but the testimony of Scripture is that all will be resurrected bodily, some to life, some to death, and there, with souls returned to bodies, we will forever be. So, our funeral services with bodies spiced and prepared and our burial service was with bodies laid in the ground testify to the glory, truth, and reality of the resurrection. We should not give this up, should we? Uh, we, need, we need rich men like Joseph who can help fund these burials and buy those spices. Um, it's my practice to use the old book of common prayer, committal service for gravesides, graveside services, where, where I say this, For as much as it hath pleased Almighty God in his infinite wisdom and mercy to take out of this world the soul of our brother departed, we now commit his body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, and dust to dust. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those which are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Right? That's the last part of that is 1 Thessalonians 4. And so think of this. The bodies of our deceased loved ones, just like the body of Jesus here, are planted in the ground as seeds for the resurrection. Just as Joseph and others cared for the body of Jesus, so we too should care for the bodies of those who die. Because 
Because the eternal state is not a disembodied existence. It is a bodily existence. Right? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will eternally exist bodily. So shall all who ever lived. And so we bury the precious bodies of our loved ones to testify to the resurrection of the body. Perhaps we should spend more on funerals than we do on weddings. In fact, I, I think we can go much further with this doctrine when we combine the honor with which the body of Jesus was treated, the bodily resurrection and the incarnation, think of all the, the, the bodily affirmations of Scripture. Bodily reality, bodily presence is going to be an important doctrine as everything becomes virtual. Think about it. The denial of bodily reality is what is fueling ideas about gender fluidity. Right? You, you are not what your body says you are. You are what your thoughts allow you to become. A denial of bodily reality and bodily presence is what is fueling ideas about um, virtual friendship and online communication like Facebook. Denial of bodily reality is what's fueling ideas about, I mean, things like this. Uh, satellite campuses and images of pastors preaching before congregations. That's what's going to happen when we become a megachurch, right? I'll be here, and we'll have satellites where an image of me is preaching. And that is acceptable at even conservative, reformed in Presbyterian churches. A denial of bodily reality is what is fueling lust and pornography rather than marriage and children. Marriage and children are physical and bodily, right? But pornography is not. A denial of bodily reality is what is fueling so much technology today, at the pinnacle of which is the cell phone. Right? The cell phone. It's at the pinnacle, maybe not of technology, but it is certainly of the time-consuming technologies that are in our lives. For many of you, the smartphone has been terrible. It's been terrible for you. And has made no contribution to your spiritual growth. In fact, just the opposite. For some of you, you'd rather be with your virtual audience. Think of this. You'd rather be with those who aren't with you than those who are bodily present with you before your eyes. You know, at the, at the, worst, the worst is when you're gathered around the, the dinner table with your family and phones are out. Um, do you know that we have it as a staff policy that phones stay in pockets during church functions? Because of this. Why? Because it, it makes me tired when I see people breaking bodily fellowship for virtual worlds, for friends who aren't present. Um, 
No need to fret about those who don't come to church if you come and decide to spend time elsewhere. Tell me which one's worse. But here's my point. I mean, I think we could come up with more and more. I mean, again, I was listening to something this week, and and the man was trying to predict where technology would go. And he said technology is, is moving from what's solid to what's liquid. Right? Every, everything, uh, the phones you have in your pockets are not just your phones, but what we expect of them is that they become something else because they're always being updated. Right? They're always transforming and becoming. So they're never really a solid thing. That's why he's saying everything's becoming liquid. And all of this just testifies of how bodily presence should be a Christian doctrine that we hold to and resist. I mean, this could be even, uh, I mean, all those utopian books we read where they're nourishing themselves with pills. No, I want turkey and gravy and potatoes. And that is going to be my testimony to Jesus Christ. I don't want things becoming ephemeral and thin. We want them to remain substantial and real. Okay, so uh, bodily presence, this idea of body and scripture's teaching on it, particularly in the light of the body of Jesus, should have some importance today. And perhaps, you know, we will have little influence over all the Gnosticism that's being taught at our universities today. But we do have some influence about the testimony we make at, at funerals of our loved ones. We do have great influence there. And so make the body important because Jesus' body was cared for when he died and that body rose. And that is our hope for the souls to be returned to the body and forever to be with the Lord. Now lastly... I want to think for a moment about the last verse of chapter 23 and the importance the disciples of Christ gave to the fourth commandment. I mean, if there ever was an excuse not to rest, if there ever was an excuse to not keep the Sabbath day holy with a holy rest, it would have been that, that day. Um, we have to, I mean, you can imagine them thinking, we've got to meet to decide what to do next. We've got to make plans. Everything we thought was going to occur hasn't occurred exactly like, and it, we've got to travel here, and I've got to see this person, and, and I've just lost my reputation because I asked for the body, and I, I need to talk to the count. I mean, countless pragmatic things would have come up. And... Um, what we can't do right now is be withdrawn and be silent and be quiet. But what do they do? They're careful to rest that Saturday. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Do you think that rest was a burden to them? Do you think the command to rest, to cease from their six-day labors was a burden to them. They've seen Jesus die. They've 
They've pulled the, the nails from his hands and feet. They've wrapped his lifeless body with linens and spices. They've laid his body in a fresh tomb. You would think that more pressing matters would require their attention, but even given the dangers and the difficulties, they cease from their labors and they rest on that one day. This verse may be the best proof in the Gospels that Jesus taught his disciples the importance and continuing relevance of the fourth commandment. There have been so many times when when getting to worship was an imprudent thing to do. The demands of work, the demands of school, the demands of family have all been reasons why I've disregarded the commandment of God. This this law that is eternal and in his moral law. And that should not be. We should remember these brothers and sisters. And no matter the difficulties swirling around us, give ourselves to worship and rest every Sabbath, every Sunday. Now, I'll conclude with Ryle's convicting words on this so I can blame it on Ryle. Listen to what he says. Let us regard the Sabbath as an institution of primary importance to man's soul and contend earnestly for its preservation among us in all its integrity. It is good for body, mind, and soul. It is good for the nation which observes it and for the church which gives it honor. It is but a few steps from no Sabbath to no God. The man who should make the Sabbath a day for business and pleasure is an enemy to the best interests of his fellow creatures. The man who supposes that a believer ought to be so spiritual as to not need the separation of one day in the week from the rest can know but little of the human heart or the requirements of our position and in an evil world. He's intense about it, right? But this is the word of God. And let me remind you that our delight, our joy, uh, perhaps a, a, a cause of that renewed zeal I pushed earlier will be how we treat this one day. Word of God says, if because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the delight, the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and honor it desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word, then the Lord will take, or then you will take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that a glorious, uh, glorious statement? I will make you, God will make you ride on the heights of the earth. If we desist from doing our own pleasure so that we might find our pleasure, our greatest pleasure in God himself. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that we would we would come under conviction from your word. That it would challenge us, that it would sanctify us, that it would 
uh, change all of our perverted thoughts into holy thoughts, that it would cause us to examine ourselves, and that we would not merely be those who hear the word, but that we would be those who do it. Father, we thank you. We thank you for Joseph and his care for the body of Jesus. The example it is to us. But we also thank you that in them caring for the body of Jesus, we learn that Jesus really died. Died in our place, died for sinners, died to make a way for us to be in your presence. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.